Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, a special edition of the Institute for Government podcast. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. The general election result has provided some answers, but also posed many complicated questions. And this podcast is going to take a close look at what may prove to be the biggest question of the lot. Will the United Kingdom still exist by the time the next general election is called? Boris Johnson's majority of 80 means he will get Brexit done. But the night produced a second big winner. The Scottish National Party won 48 out of 59 Scottish seats in the House of Commons. We knew what was coming next because its leader, Nicola Sturgeon, had told us. The party promptly came out again with its demand for a second referendum on Scottish independence. And that is just going to get louder and louder and louder. But the Prime Minister has said no, no way, not within the five years of this Parliament. Will a blunt refusal to grant that vote be enough to ease the pressure? If not, how is this referendum going to take place? And if Scotland did vote for independence, then what? To help make sense of a question which is a big part of what we'll all be talking about next year, I'm joined on today's special podcast by Akash Pown, Senior Fellow at the IFG, and later in the programme, Jess Sargent, a researcher at the Institute who's been working with him. They're the joint authors of our brand new report on a second Scottish referendum, which we published the day after the election, just as the results became clear. Akash, you've been writing and thinking about devolution in the UK for the best part of a decade. Does it feel as if we're at the end of the story or just the beginning? Well, I'd say it definitely feels like we're coming to the end of the current season and uh, maybe the scriptwriters are just waiting to hear whether they're going to be commissioned again for another season or two. It could go on a long time then. Well, we'll wait and see, yeah. I'm also delighted to be joined today by Joshua Rosenberg, legal commentator, expert and presenter of the BBC's Law in Action programme. Welcome. Hello, Bronwyn. Joshua, Boris Johnson's already had some scrapping with the highest court in the land and come off worse. Do you expect more clashes of judges versus the government in this parliament? It's really up to the Prime Minister and his government, isn't it? And um, they sometimes talk the talk but don't walk the walk. They sometimes pull back and they sometimes, of course, do find themselves, as we saw with the challenge uh, earlier this year, uh, to the prorogation, uh, which, of course, uh, um, ended uh, in, a, in a victory for Gina Miller, the challenger, who complained about the Prime Minister's uh, attempt to prorogue Parliament for five weeks. Uh, so clearly the courts uh, are well willing to uh, defend the Constitution against what they regard as unconstitutional behaviour, but whether there'll be more challenges or not, we'll wait and see. And Brexit itself may throw up quite a few questions. I think so. There's the big question, isn't there, of what happens to the law after 31st of January, after that we've left, but during the transitional period, uh, what laws the courts apply, and indeed uh, what should happen if EU law changes, uh, and yet it's sort of solidified, crystallised here in the UK. So plenty that the judges themselves would like some guidance on, and we're looking ahead to the bill that the government's about to republish. I suspect we're going to come back to all of that in the new year. That's the subject of a whole other podcast. Also on today's podcast is Kevin Schofield, the editor of Politics Home and a veteran Westminster journalist whose CV includes stints on The Herald, The Scotsman, The Daily Record and The Sun. Welcome. Hi, Bronwyn. Kevin, MPs have started arriving at Westminster. Others have uh, got a few more days to clear their desks and having a last pint on the House of Commons terrace. What is, does it feel as if Parliament has changed to you? It definitely feels like there's a different atmosphere. The um, Labour MPs that you see are are very downbeat. Obviously, they're fewer in number than there were uh, before Parliament was dissolved. And uh, Conservative MPs have got a noticeable spring in their step. They're grinning from ear to ear. What's also been noticeable, obviously, is that there's more SNP MPs. I saw one earlier on today, a newly elected 
Um, SNP MP wandering around like a kid on his first day at school trying to get used to the various corridors and uh, elevators and he just, he just looked lost actually but um, but yeah but they are obviously very happy and they are intent on coming down here and causing as much disruption as possible. Akash let me start with you I mean does this election result mean that Scots want independence? It's always a bit tricky of course to to read across directly from election results to um, what the voters think about one specific issue. I mean, people were voting on partly on Scottish independence, of course, on Brexit as well, um, on leadership, on, on a whole range of issues. Um, but, I mean, certainly with 45% of the vote that the SNP won um, on a manifesto that was was, was clearly um, about advancing the case for independence, that, that's, that strengthens their, their hand in, in claiming that there is support for that. Um, I mean, if you look at the the opinion polls specifically on the question of uh, whether voters in Scotland want Scotland to be so independent. Just on that question, as you say, the yeah. election was all kinds of things bundled up together, Indeed. even if infused with the spirit of independence. But what, what do polls just about independence tell us? Yeah, sure. So um, the, the, the polls do appear to have uh, narrowed over the past year. Um, there's a few different companies uh, who, who poll regularly on this question. And as usual, you know, there's house effects. That means you get um, some variation between them. But if you look at the average across all polls in 2019, there's been 12 of them. Uh, the no side has been ahead by two and a half percent. This is no to independence. No to independence, indeed. And that compares to um, in both 2017 and 2018, the average was more like nine percent. Um, so it definitely appears to have narrowed. No, it's still ahead, but by a much smaller margin. Indeed, yeah. And there have been a few polls that have had yes ahead fairly recently, or indeed that have had the two uh, neck and neck. And I mean, overall, that's sort of what the polls suggest, that it's it, if we had a referendum now, it would be a very close run thing. And it's not something you'd uh, want to bet the house on either way. I thought what, what was interesting was that the number or the proportion of uh, votes that the SNP got was 45%, which was exactly what the yes side got in the 2014 referendum. Now, the SNP were very keen uh, during the general election campaign, they, they began the campaign by saying vote SNP to get a second referendum. Then they seemed to have a bit of a change of heart midway through the campaign and then it became about stopping Brexit. So I think they successfully managed to get Hoover up votes from Remainers, even if they were no voting Remainers in a, in a Scottish context, as well as nationalist voters. So the other thing to bear in mind is that the first-past-the-post system now benefits the SNP in Scotland. So they got 45% of the vote, but still managed, as you say, to get 48 seats, whereas the Tories then got 25% of the vote and only got six seats. So that's got to be borne in mind, but it, there's no doubt that it's definitely strengthened Nicola Sturgeon's hand as she looks to get the legal power to hold a second referendum. Yeah, I mean, the SNP do indeed sorry, have a, a very efficient vote distribution. You're right. I mean, the other thing I would say, though, is that, I mean, the polls on independence also show that a not huge, but a decent sized minority of Labour and also Liberal Democrat voters actually say they would vote yes in an independence referendum. Um, so it's not necessarily just that 45% yeah, that yeah, one could true. one could count on their side of the equation. And of course, Brexit might change this, um, might make people feel even more for independence. Well, when Brexit has been a, a massive recruiting sergeant, I think, for the SNP cause, you know, they were... Um, after the 2015 
election. Obviously, they had the SNP tsunami, they got the 56 MPs, but really the independence question wasn't really going anywhere until the UK voted to leave the EU and, and then, and at the same time, Scotland obviously voted to remain in the EU. So that was fantastic propaganda for Nicola Sturgeon and um, and they've definitely managed to capitalise it in the last election. Well, let's, let's jump to where we are at the moment. We've got Nicola Sturgeon saying, uh, this gives me a mandate to call for a second referendum. And we've got Boris Johnson saying, no, not interested. What, what happens now? Who's Who's right? Well, Boris Johnson has a mandate in the sense that the Conservatives have an overall majority across the United Kingdom and he stood on a manifesto commitment not to have a second referendum. Uh, very clearly in the, the one that we saw in England and Wales, perhaps even more clearly in the manifesto uh, that was published in Scotland. And he can say that across the United Kingdom, uh, voters have uh, returned a Conservative government committed to not having a referendum. And is it unequivocally clear that Scotland needs the permission, is the decision in Westminster in order to have a referendum that is, that is binding? That is effective, yes. I think that is clear. You could have an opinion poll, effectively, uh, and you could have that organised by the Scottish Government. It could uh, do that at any point? Presumably, yes. Uh, but, but I think even in Scotland there's a feeling that if you're going to have a vote, it ought to be a vote that has some meaning, like the last referendum on independence did. Um, the, the point is that, that um, the future of the Union is not devolved to Scotland. It's a matter of the United Kingdom, as you would expect. And therefore, uh, the UK government has to allow this issue to be considered uh, by the Scottish Parliament, allowing a referendum in Scotland for that to be in any way effective. Remind us, Akash, of the piece of legislation that, that sets this out. Sure. So, I mean, the Scotland Act 1998, which sets out the uh, the powers of the devolved institutions, um, lists the, the union between England and Scotland, the 1707 union, as a reserved matter, which means that any legislation that were passed in the Scottish Parliament that is deemed to relate to the union um, would stand to be struck down if, if, if taken to the Supreme Court. Um, but there has been some debate about whether even a, a consultative referendum uh, would be potentially legal or not. I mean, that's something that's never been tested in the court, so we don't quite know. I mean, I'm interested in your take well, on that, There's been quite Joshua. a bit of chatter about this in the, yes. in the days after the general election, saying, well, it'll never been tested, maybe we'll test it. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you reckon? Is it, is, it, is it black and white literally on paper, or is there room for debate? I think if it's really regarded as an opinion poll, um, then it might well be within the competence of the Scottish Government. What it can't do is lead to any change in the law. I think that is clear. Um, you know, there is scope for argument and, and uh, you know, this could go to the Supreme Court. But you would think, as I say, that the Scottish government could actually assess opinion. But then you say to yourself, well, why would it? All right, it's a political move. It wants to put pressure on the UK government. Um, but, you know, I, I, do, I don't know what the courts would do. Um, and, but it doesn't seem to be at the moment what the Scottish government wants to do either. Take a step back for a second. I mean, this is not an unknown position in modern democracies or even other countries, but a small part of the country identifies itself. It feels very, very different, perhaps wants to break away or wants to run itself very, very differently. But does international law have anything to say on this? International law, and I rely on your excellent paper for this, allows countries to secede, uh, to, to, to separate from a union in certain circumstances. Uh, but as far as I can see, this isn't one of them. Um, in other words, it's for the UK as a whole 
to decide whether Scotland should have independence, and rightly so, because Scottish independence does not just affect Scotland, it affects the rest of the United Kingdom, as it would be in terms of all sorts of things that the, the rest of the UK would have to provide for Scotland, defence, support, financial support, uh, all sorts of, of issues. Um, and so you wouldn't have thought that it would be possible in practice or in international law for the Scots to say, we're walking away, but we still want you to look after our foreign affairs, for example. The kind of examples I'm thinking of are Kosovo, for example, uh, the international community to come behind Kosovo's right to be independent, really followed, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, atrocities and so on. But uh, but often where countries, it might be Turkey thinking of the Kurds or Spain thinking of Catalonia, saying, no, this is part of our country. International law has tended to give quite a bit of weight to sovereignty. Yes, and international law uh, has a lot of, of common sense involved in it. Um, you know, if if there's a a, a war and, and and it's necessary for, you know, like after the Second World War for the countries of of Europe to be reformed or to regroup or something like that, well, you know, international international law will recognise the realities on the ground, uh, but it doesn't follow that international law simply allows you know a country to to split off uh, without other circumstances. Let's talk about how it might play out on the ground, as as you're saying, if it's going to be politics that determines this, perhaps more than law. I mean, how is, is pressure going to rise, political pressure going to rise? Well, I think what you've got to remember is that Nicola Sturgeon is quite cautious when it comes to this issue. She's, she's been clear that she wants to go down what's called the Section 30 route. She wants it to be legal, um, basically a rerun of the 2014 referendum. She does not um, is not in favour of, as Joshua said, an opinion poll, uh, a referendum which doesn't have legal weight. I think if that were to happen, you'd probably end up seeing a substantial boycott as well by unionist uh, voters or unionist parties would certainly call for a, a boycott of a referendum that wasn't legally binding. Now, what happens next, we've already seen Nicholas doesn't didn't waste any time in, in demanding another um, Section 30 order. Boris Johnson, I think, will hold his ground for now. Uh, the next crunch point, I think, though, will be the 2021 Holyrood election. Uh, the SNP will obviously go into that saying we want a clear mandate to demand a Section 30 order to have another referendum. This will be much more clearly than the general election was really an, argu- an argument about independence. Yeah, well, and the SNP is yeah, saying, saying vote for us um, if you want independence. And if that then returns a majority because it's not just the SNP, there's the Scottish Green Party are in favour of um, independence as well. So if there is a majority, either SNP alone or SNP and Greens, then that would obviously give Nicola Sturgeon if she's still the First Minister by then, which, point. which we don't know, um, to then uh, come back to Westminster and demand uh, that legal power. And then I think it's, that is the point at which maximum political pressure can be placed on uh, the Westminster government. Yes, I agree that that's going to be a really key moment. And, 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 and we make that point in, in our paper, actually. Um, and after that, I mean, that is a way away and a, a lot could happen, as, as you say, before that, Kevin. But if we're still essentially in the same position that the UK government saying no way, the Scottish government, if it does still have a majority, is saying we now have a further mandate for it, then I think at some point you might reach reach a position where um, the idea of, of proceeding with a with an unauthorised referendum 
it begins to seem like more of a sensible strategy for the SNP. I mean, I saw... Uh, just for, for building up political pressure. For saying, yeah, look, look, we're demonstrating. We're demonstrating the level of support for us. And daring the UK government perhaps to to take them to the court or to or to block it. Um, and that, I think, would be... Um, well, it wouldn't, it wouldn't or be a or great thing for the country. just to say we country, don't care about we're... results saying this isn't legally binding. Yeah. But we saw, I mean, Kevin Pringle, who's a former special advisor to the Scottish First Minister, making exactly this point this week. I mean, he said um, that in that scenario, there could be a reasonable case for proceeding um, with with a referendum, even if if Boris Johnson says no. And, and, and again, making that point that the legality of that hasn't been tested. The other thing I just wanted to say quickly, that I think before that, there will be some other possible flashpoints that, that will come before May 21, namely when uh, Westminster presses ahead with various bits of Brexit legislation, starting with the Withdrawal Agreement Bill, then things like trade and agriculture and fish and so on, and all these bills that normally would only proceed with the consent of the Scottish Parliament. But as things stand, Westminster may just have to push them all through, irrespective of what the Scottish Government says. And this could be really inflammatory. I think so. Yeah, and and, uh, I mean, just that one word, fish, we've been talking about, how it it can... uh, uh, derail all kinds of aspects of, of, of the Brexit talks. So we, we do have um, all right all that in play as well. And we have the uh, trial of uh, Alex Hammond as well. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously there's lots of speculation as to what that will mean uh, for, for Nicola Sturgeon, whether she'll have to give evidence, whether things will come out in the trial that may hasten her departure from office. So were that to happen, then obviously that might well be a game changer uh, in terms of the political debate up there as well. You have a new First Minister. Uh, obviously, the SNP would still pursue the same policy, but you would not have that same figurehead. You know, Nicola Sturgeon has been at the head of uh, the Scottish Government for uh, five years now, and um, before her, Alex Salmon, and she was his deputy. So, you know, that would be quite a seismic change in the Scottish political landscape as well. Uh, uh, would a new SNP leader take a different view or or is the party committed to it anyway? You might, I suppose, argue that a fresh, young Scottish National Party um, leader would uh, be uh, reinvigorated and push uh, even harder uh, for independence. I think that's that's very much the case. As I say, Nicola Sturgeon is, is um, instinctively quite cautious when it comes to the constitutional question, albeit obviously fiercely pro-independence, but she's coming in for an, under a lot of pressure from activists who want a referendum without a Section 30 order, some of them want to declare UDI, you know, they, they want civil disobedience, they want, um, you know, they want her to be much stronger on this issue. So you're right, if a new, younger uh, First Minister was, was to come in, yeah, and wanted to flex their muscles and, and show that they were on the side of the activists, then yeah, that is certainly um, something that they would want to pursue, I think. We've been talking about what Nicola Sturgeon might do and what it looks like from her side. What about from Boris Johnson's side? He wants to argue against this. What's the kind of arguments he can make in favour of keeping the union together? Well, first of all, he can say that that's what the uh, UK as a whole want. Um, secondly, he might take a more tactical approach and he might uh, increase the level of devolution, uh, give more self-government to Scotland to try to see off this. But it does all depend on Brexit, doesn't it? Because... Um, one of the reasons, I suppose, behind independence is that Scotland says it would want to rejoin the EU as a separate country. Well, what we don't know is whether the EU would want Scotland as a separate country. It might not. Um, and that's also an issue which is worth exploring uh, before the Scots 
even consider whether they want to break away. I mean, do they really want to be outside the EU? No, apparently not. Uh, can they rejoin? Well, we haven't heard from the EU that the EU necessarily wants this. It, it would might... have to be unanimous, and that would mean that countries like Spain well, would quite, absolutely exactly, do not want exactly, parts of themselves to exactly, break away, would have to agree. Exactly, and, and so it has a wider effect across the EU. So, you know, be careful of what you wish for, because, you know, Scotland may have the worst of, boss, of both possible worlds. Akash has returned to the IFG's headquarters. I'm delighted to be joined by our colleague Jessica Sargent, who wrote the IFG's recent report on a second Scottish referendum with with Akash and managed to get it out by the lunchtime after the election night. Very well done. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs) Let's let's dig into some of the mechanics of a referendum, which is something you've specialised in the past, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I've been working on referendums for um, about a year and a half, so lots to keep me busy. (laughs) Right. Well, um, uh, we're not saying that this is going to be the next one, but let's let's take as read some of the things that we've been discussing about whether or not a referendum would take place and say, if there were to be one, when could it realistically take place? Yes, yeah, so the Scottish Government's preferred timetable is to hold a vote in 2020. Obviously, before that can happen, they'd need the agreement um, of the UK Government. Um, they need to negotiate the terms on which um, that power might be devolved. They'd need to legislate for the referendum and they'd need to um, go through the whole referendum process. So for the, before the, uh, for the 2014 vote, that whole process took three years. We could see it happening on a much more condensed timetable this time, especially if negotiations go a lot quicker. Um, but realistically, it will probably be you know, more than a year um, from the point that the principle that Scotland can hold a second independence referendum is agreed. And let's go through some of the steps you have to take in order for a referendum to seem legitimate and to seem um, as if, you know, it's delivered a reasonable result. The question has to be clear for a start, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a big debate going on at the moment in the Scottish Parliament. So um, the Scottish Government has introduced a referendums framework bill, which sets the rules according to which the referendum will be held. Um, So there's a big debate currently going on about the role of the Electoral Commission in testing the question. Um, So in accordance with uh, what we do here in the UK, any question that is proposed in legislation legislation um, is required to be tested by the Electoral Commission. They have a big process where they go out and they um, do uh, research with the public. They consult possible campaigners. At the end of that, they pull pull together all their evidence um, and they make a recommendation about whether that question is easy for voters to understand and also free from bias. So the Scottish Government has proposed that if that question has been tested before, it doesn't need to be tested again. Now, obviously, the Scottish Government proposing that they will use the same question as 2014. So you can see in which cases that might apply. Um, So the Scottish Government has moved a little bit and said if a question is older than two parliamentary terms, it has to be tested again. But obviously, this is it's quite likely that they would try and bypass that Electoral Commission testing if they were to hold a second independence referendum. And if they they were allowed to, because, of course, Mm. since that first Scottish referendum, we've had the Brexit referendum. And has that taught us anything about whether or not people understand a question? What I think Brexit has taught us to be concerned about is whether there should be a majority, a simple majority, or or a higher than 50% majority. Uh, A lot of people said to David Cameron, well, why didn't you go for a a two-thirds majority, or even just 55%, something like that? Um, Is a simple majority, just a few hundred thousand votes, sufficient to uh, decide such a a question like this? Um, That's one of the questions. And another issue, of course, is whether there should be um, a uh, multi-choice and a multi-option question in the Scottish 
British referendum, for example, uh, with uh, UK government proposals for a reformed union with more powers for Scotland on the ballot paper. Much more devolution or a kind of federalism as a a third way. Yes, and and that would affect it. Uh, But yes, it is extraordinary, isn't it, that the way in which you put a question, uh, whether it's a question that demands the answer yes or no, whether you, uh, uh, which which option goes first, uh, leave or remain as opposed to yes or no in the Brexit referendum, these things uh, affect it and these things make a difference to the number of votes it gets. Well, let's, let's just take some of these elements. I mean, what about the question of what independence would actually look like? Because that's been one of the great controversies over Brexit, of what would Brexit actually look like? People didn't know at the time. Do, do, uh, Kevin, do you think that people know what independence would be like and what would the Scottish government have to do to say, look, this really is a legitimate vote and we've explained what independence would be like? Yeah, well, if you remember in the 2014 referendum, the SNP, the Scottish government, produced a white paper, yes, which, which was incredibly lengthy and sought to uh, piece together and uh, inform people as to what an independent Scotland would look like. And it, it was basically a pick-and-mix type of independence. It was, we would get rid of all the bad things about being in the UK, as they would see it, but you don't, don't worry, you'll still be able to watch Blue Peter. You know that that type of thing. I think was actually in the white paper. So it was it was it was to try and reassure people as much as possible that you'll get to keep all the nice things about being British, but at the same time you'll get all the good things about being independent. Now I don't think they can uh, rely on certainly can't rely on that white paper again. So the whole um, case for independence would have to be uh, dreamt up again, and also seen against the context of Brexit. You know, people in Scotland have looked at the aftermath of the. 2016 EU referendum and I've seen the chaos and the turmoil of trying to extricate uh, the UK from the EU and now they're probably justifiably thinking well hang on a minute how is that going to be like that for us if we vote to leave um, the United Kingdom so the onus will be on the Scottish government to try and assuage those fears and, and make clear to them precisely what happens on day one of independence. And people might look even harder at some of the, particularly the, some of the economic questions, because of course it, uh, the, 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 that white paper said uh, we'll get to keep all the oil, which is nearest us, um, and the oil price promptly fell after the referendum, and so that made that look less attractive. Um, I don't, um, as far as I know, they haven't yet extended that formally to fish, but presumably could, the Scottish fishing waters and so on. But that this kind of thing would be in play, wouldn't it? About what kind of resources Scotland would actually have? Oh yeah, and, and since uh, the last Scottish referendum as well, we had um, the Growth Commission, uh, which uh, the SNP commissioned, and which basically was tasked with presenting a more realistic outlook on uh, the economics of Scottish independence, and, and basically less reliance on oil to basically uh, bolster and float the entire economy. Um, and it was pretty stark reading, actually. It was very realistic. It talked about um, austerity, spending cuts, um, and also on the currency question. You know, in the last referendum, they talked about a currency union, uh, so they would keep the pound, as I say, another example of them saying, don't worry, you can keep all, all the good stuff and we'll, we'll get rid of the bad. But that was rejected by George Osborne, the Chancellor at the time. So now they're talking about... Um, uh, an independent Scottish currency, which in itself I think would be quite a difficult sell. Yeah. So I think they, they've done quite a lot of work on the currency question. I they've, think they've, worked, they've, work. got, they've got at least some advisors saying they could unilaterally keep the pound, whatever the Chancellor of the day. Well, yeah, I think that's known as sterilisation, isn't it? Which, yeah. you know, is not quite the same as a currency union. You're relying on another... Yeah. 
uh, countries. Piggybacking on it. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that that was a huge issue in the last referendum. The currency issue was a very big vote winner for the no side. So that's something, obviously, that um, the pro-independence camp would, would have to tackle this time around. What did the no side publish? Because I remember the government's white paper. It was a thick paperback book on heavy paper. Um, anyone could ask for a copy and it would be posted to you. But I don't remember the no side's response. They must have had a, a document. I mean, can the UK government uh, produce um, a, a, a rejoinder, a, a manifesto for keeping the status quo, and that would be sent round to everybody at public expense? I don't remember if that happened last time. I'm pretty sure it, it didn't happen the last time. I think, if you remember as well, the last referendum was where the term Project Fear first came from. So essentially, George Osborne's strategy was to uh, instil as much terror in Scottish voters as possible about how awful independence would be economically. I don't think they can try that trick again. Obviously, he tried it then in the, tw- in the Brexit referendum, and it failed spectacularly. But that so, is that is that is the lesson of Brexit, isn't it? You know, people say we didn't know what this meant in practice. Now, some would say that anyway if they were on the losing side. But I think uh, I think the lesson of Brexit is people didn't really think it through. Uh, perhaps the politicians didn't explain to them what it would mean. You know, we all know about adverts on the side of a bus. But but I think you know if these things are going to affect the future of the United Kingdom as Brexit has. Uh, then the electorate needs to know if, of course, you say we should have these things decided by referendum. And if you really want the lesson of Brexit, it's these things should be decided by the politicians we send to Westminster. That, that, um, uh, no, that, uh, very, very interesting point as, as well. Um, and, of course, it, it isn't just an economic argument, though. I, I go the middle of what you were just saying there. Um, Tony Blair has been making the, the point to us and, and, and to others in speeches and saying, look, the case of the union has to be a, a much bigger one than just you will lose out and than just the project fear. Joshua, I wanted to pick up on the point you, you had right in the middle of your, your first answer about um, the thresholds and whether it should be 50% or whether it should be something much higher given the disruption and the scale of change and perhaps the you know, difficulty of looking after the, the losing side uh, on, on this. Jess, you've, you've done some work on what other countries say on this. Yeah, absolutely. So other countries do use um, thresholds. There's various different types of thresholds. You can have a turnout threshold that says a certain amount of people have to turn up to vote. You can have an electorate threshold, which means there's a certain amount percentage of the electorate have to vote for that proposal. Or you can have a supermajority, which I think is what we're talking about here, um, where you have a threshold higher than um, than 50%, perhaps people say 60, 55, something like that. Internationally, they're actually really quite rare. Um, I know of a few examples um, in Canadian provinces when they've where they've been used um but yeah not normally um common practice i mean that does that in, in itself in is not an argument for yeah. example within the u.s senate or something absolutely they're very common in kind of legislatures and quite often in constitutional change but not in referendums um, thresholds are particularly controversial in Scotland uh, because of what happened in 1979. So in 1979, there was a referendum on devolution to Scotland um, where there was an amendment uh, to the legislation to, to hold that referendum from um, an MP who was opposed to devolution to require that 40% of the entire electorate had to vote in favour of that proposal in order for it to happen. Now, that more than 50% of people did vote for devolution, but they just missed um, that, that threshold, um, which meant that devolution didn't happen happen then um, for another uh, you know, couple of decades. Um, and so a lot of people saw that as a kind of deliberate attempt to prevent devolution. Um, so I think, again, if you had um, some kind of supermajority or other threshold imposed on a Scottish independence referendum, it would be seen by nationalists as, as an attempt to, to prevent independence. Um, and that might call into question um, the legitimacy of the vote. Do you think that's right? 
Oh, definitely. I mean, obviously you can tell from my accent where I'm from. And yeah, <laughs> the, the memory, although I was only four at the time, I think, but the, uh, 1979 is cast up again mm-hmm. and again and again. And yeah, you're right. I think if that type of tactic was employed by the Westminster government as a sort of price, here's your referendum, but here's our, here's our terms, I think that would go down very badly mm-hmm. and it would actually just only lead to a further inflaming. And of course you might get a result where it was uh, less than the two-thirds, say, but more than half. But what's wrong with that? I mean, you know, golf clubs require a two-thirds majority to change their rules, it is said. Including uh, Scottish golf clubs. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure. Um, and, you know, yes, of course it would be a highly political decision to have any sort of threshold of the sort you've described, uh, but nevertheless you could say well, unless uh, the people in large numbers want it rather than just over 50% want it, uh, it shouldn't happen. Um, and that that's all up for argument and it's a matter ultimately for the UK government to decide. But sure, if they insist on a threshold, there will be an argument. But on the other hand, if the Scots can, can produce, say, a two-thirds or even a 60% or a 55% majority, that gives it more legitimacy. I think it is certainly up for debate, but I think it is worth also noting, as, as Bronwyn mentioned, internationally they are used a lot in kind of constitutional change or in the legislature in the UK they're not really there's only a couple of examples fixed term parliaments act and to change um, the voting system in Scotland actually where they are used and so it would be I think a bit difficult for MPs in Westminster to say we can change the constitution by simply passing a law but you need a a two-thirds majority I think it would make the case a little bit more difficult perhaps there's a question here about consistency and that if you think there's an argument for having a higher threshold um, for constitutional change you apply that to all referendums and therefore it doesn't look so much like it's just about preventing independence. It's about a process that you're putting in place. Let me bring us back then as we get towards the end of this, uh, towards indeed MPs in Westminster and as Labour MPs, smaller number now, regroup. What should they say about this? Well, I mean, the Scottish Labour Party, I mean, having grown up in, a, in an era when the Scottish Labour Party was the dominant party north of the border, even when you had the Thatcher government's down here, you know, we still consistently had 50 Scottish Labour MPs. To see the party now as a as a husk of what it was is quite remarkable. They've managed to uh, annoy Remain voters as well as uh, No and Yes voters in, in Scotland. I really don't know what they're going to do next. There seems to be a suggestion, I think they're inching now more towards supporting a second referendum, not supporting independence itself, but supporting a second referendum, I think uh, we could well end up seeing that. Although I heard Lisa Nandy on the TV this morning saying she's completely against it, so who knows, if she becomes leader, then that might not be the case. Divided Labour position on this. Yeah, for the first time. It's certainly not been clear so far what their position is. And I think it will be quite interesting whether they do move on that question of whether who should decide whether there should be a referendum, because that's the line that the SNP are taking quite clearly. They're not saying... If you give us the power to hold a referendum, we're not saying that we should definitely have one, but we are saying that we should have that power. And that could be a kind of nuanced position that Labour takes and that to say that it should be for the Scottish Parliament to decide, but then if there was a vote on whether to hold a second referendum to oppose it. So there is some nuance here in the position that they could try and fill. And finally, finally, as we get to the end of this year, let's jump forward 11 months to November 2020, the big climate change summit in Glasgow. Is this going to be a big nugget of political gold for Nicola Sturgeon or Boris Johnson to pick up in this particular battle? Well, uh, if Nicola Sturgeon is still the First Minister, obviously... Um, as, you, as you keep saying, thank you. She is, she's, I mean, she's a consummate 
professional, a great political performer. You know, if anyone was going to win the PR battle, I think it would probably be Nicola Sturgeon. But one thing I would say as well is that um, maybe an idea for the UK government would be to be a little bit more muscular in intervening in Scotland. You know, they could actually go up there and say, look, these are the type of things that the UK government can do for you if you stay in the UK. So it might be an opportunity then for Boris Johnson to go up there and fly the flag for the, for the and UK. And make the case for the union. And that must be right, because, you know, there is a limit to what Scotland can do. Obviously, large land area, small population. Um, but, you know, if, if climate change uh, requires changes in, in the way the country is run, that must apply to the whole United Kingdom. And, and Boris Johnson can presumably say to Nicola Sturgeon, well, look, on climate change, I can do more than you can. One of the big arguments for remaining part of a country. Well, we've got all that to come. The two big winners of the general election 2019 head to head over this particular issue for a lot of the next year. And that's it for this episode of Inside Briefing Extra. My huge thanks to Joshua Rosenberg, Kevin Schofield for joining us today. Before you go, I'm going to put you on the spot. Will the UK still exist in its current form in five years time? Kevin. Yes, I think it will. Joshua. The one thing I've learned is never to predict the future. (laughs) (laughs) Jess? Um, Maybe in its current form in terms of its integrity, but maybe with a different kind of devolution settlement. Thank you very much indeed. Watch this space. We certainly will be. Don't forget to subscribe to Inside Briefing on Apple Podcasts, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stream us on Spotify too. And give us an opinion poll bounce by leaving a review on iTunes. I'm hoping you enjoyed it. We'll be back on Friday with a regular episode of the podcast. That's only 48 hours away, but right now, 48 hours is a very long time in politics. In the meantime, visit our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk, and check out our report into a Scottish independence referendum, as well as our other work on the aftermath of the election. Do get in touch with all your questions. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode. See you in a few days' time.